Um, we're going to look just at um, the Bible, unsurprisingly, um, for a few minutes now. Um, should we just pray as we just come to do that? Father God, we pray you'd prepare our hearts. Uh, you'd speak to us, Lord, this morning. Father, we want to just be right before you. We want to be open-hearted. We want to hear from you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that not everything we think about is easy to think about. Lord, I thank you that there's a challenge to having faith. Lord, you call us to think deeper and deeper and deeper, not to give up when something gets a little bit complicated, but to actually um, really just have open hearts that accept what you've revealed about yourself in your word. So be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wasn't there, but uh, apparently in 1917, something pretty amazing happened. Um, People used to think, um, sorry, let me start that again. People used to think um, that a grain of sand uh, was what made everything, apparently. At some point in human history, people believed that grains of sand were uh, sort of the building blocks of everything, somehow. And, uh, and they used to think that that really small thing, you know, if you had enough of them together, you could probably create pretty much anything. And then one day they discovered something called the atom. There will be questions on atomic understanding at the end of this sermon, so uh, if you want to Google it now, now's a really great time. I can recommend some websites. Um, but they discovered the atom. Now, the atom isn't that big. <laughs> Apparently it's even smaller. The atom they discovered uh, and they thought was going to be the smallest thing on planet Earth. So that was going to be the thing that built everything. And they looked at it and they looked at it and they looked at it and they thought to themselves that there was no way that you could do anything with an atom except have it. That it was indivisible. And then in 1917, a man named Ernest Rutherford split the atom in two. And he proved a theory that he'd held for a few years that survived even war, that this tiny thing that everyone thought they understood actually had a whole load more stuff going on inside than they first believed. So much more detail, and it was so amazing. Can you imagine being one of those guys on that team that split the atom and discovered all the other stuff inside, protons and neurons, and don't even get me started on quarks. Please don't get me started on quarks. <laughs> but just like those guys in 1917, as Christians, we have an amazing opportunity to do the very same thing with the living God. We have the very same opportunity to gaze at the nature and the character and the essence of God Almighty. Couldn't you imagine being invited not just to look at something nice, but to gaze at something you shouldn't actually be allowed to look at? Because Christians, we are allowed, we're in fact, no, let me correct myself, we're invited by the living God to actually come and see, to come and look, to come and study, to come and gaze at what goes below what we think we know. The Bible is a lot of things, but really what it is, is one large revelation of the character and the nature and the essence of God. All the stories, all the words are God's way of revealing his character to a fallen world. That's why you can't be a proper Christian without a good biblical knowledge. You might be going to heaven, don't get me wrong, but you won't know your God unless you know your Bible because it's in these pages that God has chosen to reveal his character and his nature and his identity. And God has said to you, come and look. Come and look at what I'm like. Come and discover me. And I believe that studying the nature of God is pretty much the highest privilege a human being can experience. Forget all the other stuff that you're told to study, and you must study, of course. But studying God trumps them all, beats them all. There is nothing greater than staring into the eternal face of the living God 
and knowing something more that you didn't know before. And this morning we're going to look at something Mark's hinted at. We're going to look at the Trinity this morning. Some of you are already thinking, uh-oh, how are we going to cover the Trinity in 10 minutes? Well, we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, we just sang that song earlier on. And it starts with the, li- the line, I believe in God. And just like those men that split the atom, we discover through the Bible that that term God, much like the blade of grass which we seem to think we know everything about, when we get a little bit closer, we discover that God is far richer, far more amazing than we first thought. As you read the Bible, you discover that God is more. And we come across this doctrine of the Trinity. And and it's probably going to blow all of our minds this morning, but that's all right. And I'll tell you why it's all right. Um, in a moment but we're going to look at our God our God is one our God is Father Son and Holy Spirit our song says our God is three in one and today I want to look at this word Trinity this doctrine of the Trinity the idea that we have one God who exists as three individual distinct beings Father Son and Holy Spirit all fully God all equal all one God. Some of you are already now definitely thinking, how are you going to cover the Trinity in about 10-15 minutes? Well, let me tell you, I'm not going to explain the Trinity to you this morning at all, because I can't. I can't explain to you that blade of grass. What makes you think I can explain the Trinity in a way that you're going to walk out of here happy with? I promise you, I can't. What I can do is tell you what the Bible says and leave it with you. You see, when God reveals his nature, because I'm a limited human being, I can't ever hope to fully grasp clearly what God has said about himself. I can't ever hope to fully explain to you in a way you'll be happy with this doctrine of the Trinity. If I could explain to you this morning the Trinity in a way that you are happy with at half past 11 or whatever time we finish, then you can be sure that I've done a bad job. If you walk out of here thinking, Trinity, got it then I have done a bad, bad job. Or you've misunderstood. Perhaps it's two-way traffic. It's not always my fault, is it? Perhaps it's your fault for not listening. Um, But anyway, that's a a different thing. I remember once um, sitting at a train station in Bethnal Green, Cambridge Heath uh, Overground Station. I sat there, I was reading as a 25-year-old man um, the last book in the Narnia series, as you do at 25 years old. And uh, I sat next to this guy, and, uh, and I was reading the book, The Last Battle, which is kind of based on the return of Jesus at the end of time. And he said to me, uh, what are you reading? And I thought, why did you bring that up? Because now I'm going to talk to you all about Jesus, which I did. And so I said, oh, it's the last battle, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, right. And I said, but the only problem with this book is I already know the ending. And he said, what? And I said, it's based on Jesus' return. He's going to come back. And we had this long conversation. And then he said to me this. He said, the thing I don't get about Christianity is I don't understand the Trinity. And I said to him, well, you wouldn't, would you? Because it's God's nature. If you could understand the Trinity, then you could be sure that you've not understood God. If you could understand God, then he would be like you, a man. If he's God, then he's going to be slightly outside of your comprehension. And that's okay. So this morning, if we get to the end of this with lots of questions and the brain slightly frazzled, I believe that's actually a good sign. A sign that we're looking at something beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding, and a sign that it is God that we're looking at. You see, we're not called to explain everything about God. We're called to accept and believe the things of God. When God reveals himself, he doesn't ask, are you all right with that? Does that fit with your philosophical understanding? He doesn't say that. God says, this is what I am. Believe and follow. That's as simple as it goes. 
We're not called to explain God, even though we can study him, but we're called to believe. So the Trinity uh, is a truth that's revealed across the pages of the Bible, and God calls us to accept how he is and believe him, even if it is mind-blowing. And so because of that, you won't find the word Trinity in the entire Bible. If you have a, ever have a knock from some well-dressed people in the middle of a Saturday afternoon and they happen to be Jehovah's Witnesses, they will say to you, ooh, you're a Christian, aren't you? Good. Can you point to the page in the Bible that uses the word Trinity? And you can't because it isn't used in the Bible at all. It is a term that they came up with later on that simply means try, three, and unity, one. Three as one. And it doesn't mean it's not in there. It's a term to define the way God has revealed himself in the pages of our Bible. What we see in the Bible is the idea that we have one God who is three individual beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each who are fully God, but who are one at the same time. Confused? Good. We're on the right track then, aren't we? If you'd have gone, nah, it's easy, then we'd have to start again, and then we'd be here till Tuesday. One God, three persons. That's the Trinity right there. So let's look at some Bible verses. Enough talking. Let's actually read the Word of God and see what the Bible says. And, uh, and so because this is not a lecture, this is a, a sort of a sermon, we're going to try and uh, just sort of give a brief overview. So let's look at some verses that tell us that we believe in one God. Because some people say, oh, you Christians believe in three gods. No, we believe in one God. Christianity is monotheistic, one God. Um, and, and it's universally accepted. People say, oh, yeah, you're a monotheistic religion, one God that you worship. And the Bible itself makes it clear time and again that we have one God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, uh, part of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. To mean I'm the only one God. There's only me, no one else. There's not three of us. There's me. I'm God, and you don't have any gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, God himself again says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. One God. Isaiah 45, God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And at the end, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other. There's not three gods, there's one God. That is the message from Genesis to Revelation. We believe in only one God. And then in 1 Timothy 2.5, says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. We'll come on to that in a minute. And much like that atom that they split in 1917, when we unpick and unpack who this one God is, we have our minds blown that this God is in fact three as one all the time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are different to each other, but they are all fully God. They're not a third of God, like you cut up a pie, but they are the part of the same God. They are God as one. So the Bible also speaks about these three persons um, in God. We see in the Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my Son, whom I love, whom I am well pleased. Right in that passage, you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've got the one God, we've got all three members of the Trinity, all in one go. Now the mind's really blown because they all appear at the same time. 
But that's our God revealed as three. Three persons, one God. Each member of the Trinity is said to be fully God. If we were to think about God the Father, we wouldn't really need to because all of us would say God the Father is God. Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer with our Father in heaven. He prays to him and refers to him as God the Father. Um, And so we know that God the Father has always been considered God. When people think of God in the Old Testament, they're thinking of God the Father, aren't they? Always. They're thinking God the Father. So he's God. We're happy with that. But then you get to Jesus. People want him just to be a man. But we discover that Jesus Christ is considered fully God. Not a bit of God, not sent by God, not just a prophet of God, but actually fully God as a human being. And I know this is uh, deep stuff for a Sunday morning, but I really feel God wants me to share this this morning. So if it blows your mind, I believe it's doing it for a purpose. Because it's so easy to go through our Christian life and not ever really think past the blade of grass stage. It's possible to get to the end of your life and someone says, what do you actually believe about God? And you say, I've got no idea. So I've never actually thought about it. Well, here we are. And I hope you take it away and don't just go, that was a bit intense. But go home and think about it. Ask me questions. Ask other people questions. Understand your God as much as you can. So what about Jesus? Is he God? Well, after uh, the beginning of the book of Gospel of John, the book of John, John writes uh, a poem in Greek. That's why it doesn't rhyme. Um, incidentally, if you want a poetry, Greek is not your language. Um, unless you understand it in Greek, then it's really funny and got lots of little things. In English, it doesn't translate very well at all. But John 1 is a poem. It's poetry. And this is what John writes about Jesus. He refers to him as the Word of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God the Father, God the Son, separate. Then he says this, and the word was God. With God and was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Actually reminds me of Genesis chapter 1. When God speaks almost to a crowd, when he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. When God made the world, he spoke to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John picks up that theme in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. But not just that, he was, he was God. Interestingly, our Jehovah's Witness friends, again, struggle with John chapter 1. See, lots of people struggle with the Trinity. And in 18-something or other, Charles Russell, who began the Jehovah's Witness movement, hated the idea of the Trinity, couldn't stand the idea of the Trinity and hell. And you know what he did? Dumped them both. And carved out a whole new theology that got rid of hell and the Trinity. And so when a Jehovah's Witness will knock on your door in John chapter 1, they will say, you've mistranslated that verse. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. But you can tell them from me that for 2,000 years of classical Greek understanding, no one has ever put an A next to God. They have mistranslated it to get rid of the Trinity. The Trinity is in the Bible when you see it. So moving on. So, separate but with God. 
Um, actually, in Genesis as well, there's a really interesting uh, use of the word God in verse 26 of chapter 1. And across that chapter, the word for God in Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1 is a Hebrew word called Elohim. Um, which I think sounds brilliant. I think we should speak more Hebrew, actually. It sounds much more beautiful than English. Um, in English, we find ourselves going, yeah, yeah, um, uh, um. But Hebrew, it sort of rolls off the tongue. And I'm not even doing it justice. But the word for God in Genesis 1, Elohim, um, is used in a singular sense in that sentence. But one God speaks. Yet the word itself is plural. Which I think is brilliant. So even linguistically, you get this hint of the one God speaking who is more than one, but one at the same time. So Jesus picks up, he's linked back to that Genesis passage. He's linked back to God in the Old Testament and creation. But Jesus himself will talk about himself being God. Um, He refers to himself as I am. At the burning bush when Moses meets God and asks, what's your name? God says, my name's Yahweh, uh, which translated into English is simply I am who I am, or I am who I will be. And if you've been doing the Bible course, you'd have had a bit of a talk on that. But I am was recognized as a name of God in the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes along and he starts saying seven times in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And every time he's saying, I am God. Not a bit of God, but I am God. Jesus did the things that you associate with God. When he was in a house and they made a hole in the ceiling, and they lowered down a paralyzed man on a mat. And as he laid there, what was he going to say to him? I'll pray to God for you. Maybe God will heal you. He looks at that man and he says, your sin is forgiven. And the people in the room are furious. Why? Because who can forgive sin but God? Who is this guy? And so as if to prove that he can forgive sins, he says, get up. Take your mat and go home. If I can do that, I can do the other thing. I am God. All of his miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick, calming the storm, walking in water, all things in the Old Testament, God did. And at his birth in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, what do we read about Jesus? Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father as well. I remember once somebody wrote that down, and I think somebody next to me thought they'd made a mistake. Jesus isn't Father. They're different. But no, they're different, yet they're one as well. Our God is fully God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God as well. And in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus is nearly killed, but likening himself to God. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then he says um, a bit later, uh, earlier on as well, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They do not perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father has given them to me He is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hands. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for the good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The Trinity is All three are all fully God. The same with the Holy Spirit. We'll whiz through these. But in Acts chapter 5, the terrible incident of Ananias and Sophia, 
They're told, why have you blasphemed? Why have you gone against God? They're talking about God's Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that our body is God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. And his Spirit was there at creation as well, bringing order from chaos. And if you were to go through some other verses, you would see the Trinity mentioned in the same verses. 1 Corinthians 12 says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Lord and Spirit are the same in that verse. There are different kinds of working, but all of them, uh, for in all of them, and in every one, it is the same God at work. We have the Trinity mentioned there. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. And of course, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You would not even utter that line unless all three were God. Okay, could you ever illustrate the Trinity? I won't ask. Um, but across my 20-odd uh, years of being a Christian, or 25 years, I forget how old I am and how long I've been a Christian, it's fading into like a, a mist. Um, but at different times, people have tried to illustrate this concept of three being one. Sometimes they come up with a three-leaf clover. Or maybe they come up with the idea of uh, water. Sometimes water can be steam, sometimes it's water, sometimes it's ice. Or maybe an egg. You can have a fried egg, a scrambled egg, or a hard-boiled egg. Um, Or maybe you get a a farmer. He can be a farmer, or he can be the mayor, he can be the church leader. All three roles. Every single one of those illustrations is wrong. And totally wrong. Actually completely wrong. Because it isn't that one person pretends to be something else sometimes. God is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's always one God at the same time. The only two illustrations that come closest is the idea of a spring and a river. If you imagine you have a spring that starts a river over here, I don't know quite how rivers and springs, I haven't been to one for a while, you've got a spring over here that starts the river, and then you've got the river next to it. They're both different. You say, there's the spring, that's the river. But they're both somehow united, aren't they? They're individual, yet they're one in terms of their substance or their essence. Think of marriage. You've got two people who are complete individuals, yet when they get married, uh, well, I asked David and Claire, well, you know, remember what we said in July? Um, but you'll leave your father and mother and you'll become one. So David, sorry, I'll pick one, you're only sitting over there, aren't you? Um, but when they became married, they became one. One person, that's why marriage is so important. They become one person, but yet they're two individuals as well. And perhaps that's the closest human analogy. Okay. I hope that's clear. I hope it's not clear, actually. I hope it's making you think, I want to know more. I hope it makes you think, I don't get it, and I want to go and find out for myself. Because there's a whole lot of other words I could have dropped in or other verses we could have looked at, but I assume you want to go home sometime before next Sunday. Um, But this is our God. And this matters um, for a variety of reasons. The Trinity explains the Bible better. If Jesus isn't God, then who is he? Then what on earth is he doing allowing Thomas to worship him? What on earth is he doing um, letting people call him son of God? What on earth is he up to if he's not the king of kings and God himself? Why is it that you get transformed when you become a Christian if the Holy Spirit isn't fully God? What is he? What is it 
if you, if you don't understand the Trinity. If you understand the Trinity, then you know God enters your life and he is the one that cleans you by the power of the cross. But if the Holy Spirit is just some alien force and isn't God, then how can that work? How can you truly change unless God enters you and cleans you on the inside? Without the Trinity, you have no salvation. You have no God. You have only confusion. And in fact, if it wasn't for the Trinity, the cross would have been a spectacular failure. The Bible tells us very clear that when we sin, we break God's law. We sin against the living God. Therefore, the only person qualified to save us from our sin isn't another human being broken like us, but God in our place. Jesus was fully man and fully God. When he died on the cross, a full human being, he was fully God. He took our sin off our shoulders and he was the only one qualified to do it. So, we're going to sing a song. Probably not before time. But let me just ask you one question as the, as the music group come up. What sort of faith do you have this morning? Do you have a faith that's at the atomic level? That you see the, the word God and you think, that's it. I won't go any deeper. There can't be any more. Just God. God and faith and church and that, that'll do. Or are you going to be brave enough? to pick up this every day, to study, to do a correspondence course, to have a chat with me or someone else and actually say, what goes beyond that term God? And actually open it up a bit and see the quarks and the neurons and the protons or where else is in there and actually discover there's a whole rich universe of understanding about your God that if you just stay at the blade of grass level, you'll never get. I really want to challenge all of you, all of you, all of me, to really study the word of God. When was the last time you answered God's invitation to study him, to see him, and to know him fully? Don't wait for a sermon or a Bible study at a small group. You live in the most privileged time in all of humanity. There has never been a time in church history where the average Christian can get access to so many books, so many articles, so many websites, where you can have a college education of theology. So many people don't bother because they're happy with a blade of grass. That will do for today. What if this morning you've walked right past the King of Kings and you didn't stop to look at him like I stepped on that blade of grass?